This talk is offered by Ordinary Mind Zendo. Ordinary Mind was founded by Barry Magid, Dharma heir of Charlotte Joko Beck, and is dedicated to her vision of a psychologically minded Zen practice adapted to the needs of American students practicing in the context of their everyday lives. Our public programs are made possible by donations from people like you. When Freud uh, first wrote about the interpretation of dreams in 1900, he sought to explain their seeming irrationality and the strangeness of their images by saying that our unconscious mind was trying to keep hidden from our consciousness certain thoughts or feelings or wishes that were unacceptable. And so that there was an elaborate mechanism (coughs) of dream work to disguise what we really felt. And it was let out in at night in dreams only in this hidden way. And so in a sense a whole generation of uh, psychoanalysts and therapists grew up thinking that dreams were something that needed to be deciphered. That they had hidden meanings that had to be decoded and that there was an elaborate system for doing this and you could get it right or wrong. I think you can hear the analogy to the way um, koans are often uh, practiced within Zen. We can become preoccupied with their hidden meaning, get preoccupied with getting them right, thinking that there's a um, disguised or hidden answer that we're not getting. But like dreams, koan basically use the language of metaphor, of image reveal something about who we are. And the way we can approach both, the way we approach a poem, is to try to enter into the imagery. Try to ask ourselves in turn what what would it mean to be this part of the dream this part of the koan. What does that feel like? What what part of ourselves or our life can that stand for metaphorically? There's some ways we can approach that that will be more evocative than others and we can, if we share our feelings of a dream or a poem or a koan with another person, there may emerge associations that we hadn't thought of ourselves 
which make something about it more vivid to us. That vividness, that immediacy, is um, what it's all about, whether we're talking about interpreting your dream or interpreting a koan. It's trying to make alive for us in this metaphoric way something that otherwise might simply be an abstraction. And so lots of koans use elaborate imagery to illustrate some basic dualism that we carry around unconsciously in our life. And so koan like does the dog have Buddha nature immediately sets up a dichotomy. Dog, Buddha nature. Seeing two things that are seemingly at the opposite ends of our spectrum and ask us how do we bring these together in that spirit I thought I would talk about a uh, koan that isn't uh, usually used in our Japanese lineages but one that uh, comes from the Korean uh, Zen lineages and one that um, uh, Sansanim used to uh, talk about. Koan asks, a mouse eats cat food when a cat food, when a cat bowl is broken. What does that mean? And it can seem like a riddle that we don't know the answer to, right? We can get very preoccupied with, how do I answer that? But we can just start by approaching it as a, as a dream or as a poem and look one at a time at the images of, of a mouse, food, broken bowl, and a cat. What do these have... How can we relate these to our practice? We'll start with the mouse. The mouse is tiny, often timid, afraid, scurries around the edges of things looking for something, right? That's a good image for how we start out in life, right? most of us feeling like we're too little, we're lacking something, trying to get something, we're hungry. And over there, the cat food, right? Cat bowl, right? And that big cat. <laughs> and now, obviously that cat's got what we want. It's got this big bowl of food and it's grown fat and happy. And so as a little mouse, we want what that cat has. And I think that becomes a metaphor for how students always approach teachers. He's got something I want. He's got something I'm lacking. How do I get it? Right? 
Now there's a sense in which a broken bowl means it's uh, it's cracked and it's available uh, to a mouse that otherwise couldn't climb up over the side. That's how I picture it, right? Uh, and it's you know like the like first seeing an ox. Uh, it's the it's our first glimpse of the uh, of the Dharma, whatever form that's going to take. That sort of is tantalizing, but the Dharma has to be broken open and given out to people in a form they can reach and understand. Uh, if it resides in a perfect unbroken bowl, then it's like up on a mountaintop that nobody can have any access to. It's so perfect that nothing could get in. Right? Uh, but we can approach it. There can fortunately be all sorts of people there, like myself, who water it down, you know, so you can understand it. Right? Don't keep it all hidden and esoteric. So we, we figure out ways to give the mice a taste. Right? So what happens? Mouse goes and gets a taste of uh, the real thing, the cat food. Wow. (laughs) Now I think what happens in the mouse's fantasy and what happens to most of us in beginning practice is that uh, we go through a stage where we eat a little cat food and we think we've turned into Mighty Mouse. (laughs) Right? We've, we've now got the super cat food rocket fuel that lets us be really big and powerful and strong instead of a weak little mouse, and we get really energized by that, right? And so that's a stage of practice where um, we really think we've finally gotten something, right? And our lives have been empowered and enriched and energized by, wow, you know, we got it. Now that's more or less where most people will spend their whole Zen career, you know, longing for the cat food, getting a taste of it, and if they get some, they really feel full of themselves, and they get to play Mighty Mouse. Uh, That's really feels very good, although occasionally it doesn't play well at home. Now, the, the problem is, it doesn't stop there. I mean, for most, some people it may stop there, and they'll see if we can get away with it. But we're not just talking about the mouse here. There's also a cat over in the corner, right? And uh, somebody's nice enough to put food in this cat's bowl, but uh, what do cats really like to eat? mice (laughs) so the mouse thinks that what's in the bowl is the cat food but really the mouse is the cat food (laughs) and if the cat in some way represents a more fully realized state The way that's going to uh, come about 
is for that mouse uh, to get eaten, that mouse to die. Right? It's not, unfortunately, part of the mouse's script most of the time. Right? It's not what the mouse has in mind. Um, thinks he can come in to a Dharma center, grab a quick bite of the Dharma, feel empowered, and then run out. Right? But Dokasan is intended to be uh, where the cat gets the mouse. <laughs> now that takes a lot of forms, and we have to try to understand what that can mean. Um, when Joko uh, gave me Dharma transmission, she said, uh, I'm going to ruin your life. Uh, and that's a kind of typical expression that says, you know, if you're going to really do this, don't think in terms of what you're getting, think in terms of what you're going to lose and what you're going to give up, right? See, that mouse starts out thinking all in terms of what is he going to get. And he can get a lot. Um, but the real transition, the real big step is... Uh, when the mouse uh, gets eaten, when the mouse, the small self of mouse's ego or self or whatever we want to say, something in that is what we want to say has to get killed by the cat, get really killed by the Dharma, not get filled up and puffed up by the Dharma. Right? And what's that going to actually look like or feel like? Right? Now, in reality, you know, from the mouse's point of view, this is not good news. Right? Uh, but part of the dualism, the false dualism of the koan, is that there are two separate beings, mouse and cat. Right? Uh, but we really are, from the beginning, both. And we've split ourselves uh, into imagining there are these two aspects. But really it's all, there's just one of me, right? Just like they say, there's only one moon in the sky, not two. It's not like you got a big self and a little self. There's just you. And what that, <coughs> what that means that in some sense that mouse side of us, which is small and preoccupied um, with a narrower range of uh, interests, gets taken over by something bigger, something larger in our life, right? And one of the ways we talk about that in practice is the sort of the transformation, uh, transformation of gaining ideas into compassionate functioning. Right, the mouse is basically a a model of practice at the level of some gaining idea, some curative fantasy, something that's going to make me bigger and stronger. Uh, but the the cat, at some place. <laughs> 
we want to see is uh, or the death of the mouse is something like when we speak of, of no gain, what does it mean to transform our practice to a level that's different from that, that level of gain into some higher or different or uh, more other-directed kind of uh, functioning. Now, there are lots of um, levels to this. And we can play with the imagery of the koan a little bit. I mean, cats, of course, can also get uh, fat, happy, and complacent, you know. And uh, if you think that, well, I've, I've gone past being a little mouse now I've realized true Buddha nature and I'm a Roshi, you know, or something, you can get to be a pretty fat cat in your own imagination and try to live like one uh, in the world. So there are lots of uh, dangers at every level of this. But cats... uh, the cat in this koan really does uh, need to live on mice, not cat food. It shouldn't just be uh, something out of a can, which is how most of us get the Dharma, right? <laughs> but we have to live on, on mice, on something that is alive and real in ourselves, but we could say our, our own emotional reality. Uh, we have to keep going back to that over and over again, and uh, it has to f- it has to feed us and nourish us. Um, we're not really as cats in the mode of trying to eradicate mice once and for all. This sort of would eliminate our food supply. Just like we're not trying in practice to eliminate our humanity, we're not trying to extirpate as if it was a pesky rodent you know our appetites our desires our emotion or any other side of our animal nature right? <coughs> uh, we can fall into a practice model that makes us think we're an exterminator and all those parts of us are like you know rodents we want to get rid of it's the wrong wrong approach um Somehow we have to find a way to be nourished by that side of uh, ourselves. Um, That's part of the healing of the split in our own mind between mouse and cat, between thinking that we have uh, fundamentally two different natures that are at war with each other. Uh, As long as you picture yourself as having two sides, one of which is at war with each other, you're never going to win, right? You've got to figure out how to bring those two things together. Now, when I talk about a koan this way, there may be people in a Korean lineage who sort of say, well, you know, that's not how you answer it or work with it as a koan, well, okay, they can do lots of different things with it, but they, one way or another, they're going to engage 
these metaphors, and usually in koans you enact them uh, one way or another. Uh, but it really doesn't do you any good to learn to answer koans. Uh, the real value is in learning to penetrate them as questions, uh, to really feel all the sides of your own nature uh, embodied in the different images. Um, Students rush too quickly to try to figure out what's the answer. Uh, Much more important to really feel what's the question.